Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. <laughs> hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, l- listeners, um, as the recording started, you probably heard my uh, high-pitched cackle. Um, <laughs> on, uh, and uh, one of the reasons why is, uh, before we start recording an episode, Nia and I usually um, uh, briefly discuss um, <clears throat> points of emphasis, okay, things we want to make sure we cover with a particular podcast. <laughs> yeah, but y'all don't be thinking that that's some deep planning. That's like three minutes before we start. We're yeah. not, Okay. I would that we were NPR and we had the whole thing laid out for weeks ahead of time and a producer and a director and people to tell us what to say. I mean, I'm a little envious because clearly cereal is marvelous and it works well, but we 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 literally we start like a couple of minutes. I don't know how do you want to start. I don't know how do you want to start. It's like one of those things where you're trying to figure out how to go to dinner. And and one of the reasons why I was chuckling this morning was, <laughs> I said I'm starting off a little sarcastic. Sarcastic, right? Which, <laughs> as if that's different from my natural state. Okay, well, one there's that, but then two, <laughs> okay, I mean you know. <clears throat> Uh, you know, one of my dominant characteristics, according to many, is my overarching sarcasm, okay, about everything that I encounter in my life. Okay? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you eat sarcasm for breakfast along with drinking your coffee. Yes, okay. Uh, yes, uh, may I have a, a helping of sarcasm to be washed down <laughs> by a pot of coffee, right? And but- what brought on the sarcasm was, was me saying... Oh, the government and its organizational techniques, because um, our next department is the Department of Labor. Yes. But labor started, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? We ought to count the people who are working. We ought to count the companies and uh, employment and all that other issue, all those other issues. The government's like, yeah, we should count that. And then what they do, they stuck it under interior. Yes, and remember, in a previous podcast episode, uh, listeners, we talked about how the Department of, of the Interior's nickname for years was the Department of Everything Else. Right. Where, you know, kind of sort of the junk room or junk closet of the federal <laughs> government, right? Exactly. Okay, we're not entirely sure where we should put this particular agency as a unit, so let's just go ahead and stick it in Interior, right? Yeah. And in yeah. Nia, what's really fascinating is Nia's referencing the uh, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it was created, which, by the way, still exists as its own thing. Yes, it's a unit within the Department of Labor. Okay, but it was created in 1884, and one of the more fascinating things, at least for me, in our series about federal government cabinet departments is you can really track the evolution and change of U.S. society with these departments. Because in 1884, you're talking about the era in which the United States was 
firmly shifting, I mean, in the throes of shifting its economy from agrarian to industrialization. And, That's and the, the industrial notion, revolution. Yeah, and the notion of labor, okay, can be reflected by the fact that the United States federal government was like, okay, we don't, we no longer have just a whole bunch of farmers. We have a whole bunch of people doing other things, right? Their, their employment is no longer working on the farm or in a job supporting farms. They're now doing stuff like, okay, working in manufacturing plants well and now there are wages involved there there used to not be wait our farmers don't make wages like there's not a yes i mean in, in you either in, have crop and you sell it and you get money or you don't but there's or, no wage were, between that and if you were hired to work on a farm okay it would be seasonal but at times farmers would pay their workers with what was harvested right with okay. food or with shelter there's all kinds of you don't get a lot of wage i mean you have some we're not saying nobody ever earned a wage or anything like that but we're saying right. that once you get industrialization now you have large-scale wages now you have large-scale industry that is affecting other large-scale industry right like if you have a if you have, oh, I don't know, Ford Motor Company, which I know is this is a little early for that, but you have the Ford Motor Company, that's a bunch of industries that have to come together. That's steel, that's tires, that's all those bits. So you have all these different things working together. We're getting the beginning of that right. when the, we see the Bureau of Labor, the Labor Statistics. Statistics. And again, this reflects- And the BLS still puts out those same kinds of and, and, of and statistics again, now that that when people say the lo- latest unemployment report, that's coming out of the BLS. That's coming out of yes. the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And their monthly and annual reports are fascinating snapshots of what's actually what Americans are actually doing for work. Right. Right. You right. Know, they it, like it, just relatively recently in the last ten years or so, they've had to add the gig economy because. Yes. Before that, there was no such thing as the gig economy. You had you either had a job working for a company or you didn't, right? That's right. And now you have these sort of self-employed people who are working in all these different kinds of jobs and putting together. Yeah, it's a, it's the statistical reports that come out of there are really cool and interesting. They also do um, projections of where jobs will be going in the future, like. I'm just going to say that the prediction in 1700 was everybody's going to be a farmer, right? It was a pretty easy prediction to well, make and, 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 and because you I, don't get a whole lot of other people. Yeah, and I remember stuff. me when I was in high school sitting down with a guidance counselor who actually <clears throat> took an annual report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and said, well, uh, Mr. Oh, cool. Morgenbach, uh, if you actually want a uh, 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 a worthwhile career or profession, you know, you should go into these fields, right? And, and, you, <laughs> and you even see newspaper articles even today, okay, Nia, to where they will take, okay, a report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and go ahead and say, these are the jobs of the future. Right. Okay? Here's what's and coming not, up. And they're, they're not making it up. They're taking it from what the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
He's uh, projecting. He's, he's projecting. Yep. But let's yeah, go. It's back really to, cool. Yeah. So um, let's go so back the, to But the, what I think, what, what the where where I was being sarcastic was, of course, the government would decide to count a thing before it decided who would count the thing. Yes. Right. Like. Yes. Because sometimes the government doesn't do things in the tidiest order. Yeah, there's not a linear thought process. Right? <laughs> not, not, yeah, not. In, but, in, in, in the history of the Department of Labor really demonstrates how. <laughs> how nonlinear the government non-linear, can be. Okay, the federal government's <laughs> thinking can be. Because it was first, the Bureau of Labor Statistics was placed in the Department of the Interior. Okay, then um, uh, uh, in 1903, it became a bureau again. What? So it was then, a it was a bureau within the Department of Interior. Interior. Then it became its own jam. Yes. For it's, a few years, right? Like it yes. was its own Department of Labor, except it didn't have a secretary. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so for 15 years we had the Bureau of Labor. Okay, but it lacked uh, cabinet status. So you probably had somebody in charge, but they weren't a secretary. Well, you that's right. Probably okay. you had somebody in charge, but they and, weren't a secretary. They were just, you know, that guy that runs the Department of Labor. Oh, I didn't realize we had a Department of Labor in the executive, sir. We don't. Yeah, and they it's certainly just over there in the corner doing. They certainly thing. didn't show up to the cabinet meetings with the president. Right? <laughs> okay. And then in 1903, it becomes a bureau again within the newly created Department of Commerce and Labor. Okay. But then 10 years later, now, and this just absolutely fascinates me because this would never happen today. The United States Congress passed a bill creating a standalone Department of Labor as a cabinet level department. And the outgoing president signs it, leaving to his successor, who just beat him in the presidential election of 1912, to appoint our first secretary of labor. That would never happen today. Right? Oh, no. Oh, um, no, 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 no. no. The, 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 way, the way partisan politics are today, no Congress is going to go ahead and give an outgoing president the opportunity, one, to reject a bill that they just passed, creating a brand new department, and then to have that president give their successor the opportunity to claim the first secretary of labor in our country's history. Yeah, it just wouldn't be done. That was President Taft, right? So he signs yes. that, and then he's like, okay, somebody else gets to name the first one. You know that now. If a president on his last day got that opportunity, he would quickly name someone who could, so he could say, "And I named the first secretary That's of right. yes. the Department of Fu and Wa." Yes. right? Like, and yeah, no, we would. We're yeah, we're too partisan for that to happen today. Yes. So, almost immediately, the Department of Labor gets a stain on its institutional history. Okay. Is that because his name was also Wilson? <laughs> I find that hilarious. Again, we go to the names thing. His name isn't particularly interesting, William B. Wilson. 
is the no. first secretary of labor, no, but he's under President Wilson, yeah, which I just think, why why not confuse the issue with Mr. Wilson whenever you're in a in a cabinet meeting? I guess you'd say Mr. President and Mr. Wilson. Okay, but where I was going, uh, oh, sorry, uh, uh, Neil, was the <laughs> fact that the departments okay had a rather large role um, uh, when the United States entered World War One. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, well, yeah, it had only been what in existence for three or four years at that point. Uh, yeah, and in, in particular, uh, the department advocated for uh, the rights of workers, which becomes a huge issue during the war, because you know there are many industries that need to provide, if you will materials, weapons, food, clothing, etc., for the nation's war effort. And many of those industries, okay, weren't all that interested in workers' rights. They were they were interested in, okay, giving the federal government what it wanted. And getting so, the contracts. Yeah. So make so they could make I mean, money. Right. So, your business would make a lot of money if you got a contract to make x uniforms x number of uniforms or whatever but on the flip of that unions that's a great time for a union to say really you need us to be up all night doing that we're gonna have to have these and that's where following you, you know gifts or not yes. gifts but um adjustments to our yeah i mean i mean we need we need certain kinds of benefits and protection thank you that's okay. it um so it was during this period of time that the department of labor um uh, uh wanted to recognize the rights of workers to bargain collectively um so that's when you get your first allowed unions is that no 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 we don't get that until um uh, uh the the roosevelt administration in the 1930s oh okay but it creates a tension and as the department of labor is working to protect workers during the war post-war okay many of those workers okay were like okay we want some of the protections we had during the war effort to continue on in the post-world war I 1920s right and you saw workers engaging in strikes and the reaction of the Justice Department was, well, a lot of these strikes are being instigated by foreign influences. You know, people who have uh, proclaimed membership in um, groups like the Socialist Party of the United States, the Communist Party of the United States. And, I was going to say pinko commies. Yeah, that's right. So you had the first, if you will, red scare in the history of the United States was during the 1920s. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the Department of Labor was one of the few federal government departments that pushed back against this effort to round up, you know, strikers, okay, and because they were just like, our job is to promote, protect, and develop standards 
for all labor in the United States. Well, and you're also seeing that tension in the shift between, um, you know, patriotic war service, you should, you know, you should serve your country to when you come after World War One, and people say, hey, but we really liked that eight-hour workday, and we really liked being able to grieve a, a problem within the workplace if we were, if we felt it was dangerous or we felt it was, you know, something else. And, and people saying, um, yeah, no, we're going back to our old ways of, of labor without rights. And people are like, yeah, but I've had a taste of rights and I liked them. So yeah. you're having that tension back and forth. And it, it's interesting to me, the Department of Labor, because usually what the government struggles with is that place to, of finding the place between promoting a thing, but regulating a thing. Yes. Because we regularly a, see that that's the tension. That's if Augie has not taught us anything else in this entire run of podcasts, is that that is almost always the tension of the federal government. How do I promote a thing while still protecting either the thing or the parts, you know, or the people who work in the thing, right? Think in terms of the interior. How do I, how do I promote oil drilling in this country because there's a need for that? while still protecting federal lands from being overdrilled and there's all these tensions. So I, it's interesting to me that labor comes down more on the side of the people, although that is the name. So you would think that would be the case. And that was the case until we get into the 1920s when you have a series of Republican presidential administrations um, and uh uh, the Secretary of Labor in a, uh, throughout a number of these administrations was uh, James J. Davis, okay, uh, when people were, you know, still using their middle initial, right, <laughs> okay. Dwight D. Well, Eisenhower, what does the D stand for? Nothing. Yeah, right, okay. Harry, Harry S. Truman. Oh, no, it's Harry S. Truman, yeah. Dwight David Eisenhower, it's Harry S. Truman. Truman, right, okay. Um, uh, and the Department of Labor in the 1920s was more neutral. Um, and uh, Davis, um, uh, historical papers have indicated, was you know somewhat cooperative um, in helping the federal government um, enforce very restrictive immigration laws in deportation of undesirable aliens, right? Okay. It, it, so organizers and yes, right. People who would do things with unions to try to protect workers and that sort of thing. Yes. Okay. Okay. Those are the ones we're talking about as being undesirable. Yes. Okay. But then once again, the Department of Labor—you can almost get whiplash. Okay, following <laughs> along the Department of Labor's history, right? Because while the 1920s, the Department of Labor was quote unquote, more neutral. In the 1930s, the Department of Labor was extremely active, was extremely active. Is that okay. in part because of the depression? Yes, okay. I mean, you know, we talked about this with a number of the alphabet agencies that the Roosevelt uh, administration created to help labor, okay? And, and again, you know, the unemployment rate was you know some years during the Great Depression um, at least twenty five percent, 
right? And, and that's that, terrifying, a quarter of your population out of work. And then there was, according to some scholars, another 10 to 12% of the adult population that was underemployed, okay? They just stopped looking for work, okay? They just stopped looking, right? Yeah. So, you know, they weren't, make it on, weren't making it onto the unemployment rolls because they just gave up. That's stunning. That's a third of the population, okay, that, you know, was not engaged in significant, meaningful labor, right? Right, which is why you see hunger and you see people moving around the country trying country, to find work. work and, they're losing yeah. their homes, they're losing their property. And FDR appointed as a Secretary of Labor um, the first female cabinet member in our country's history. Um, uh, uh, a, a very talented, um, significant um, uh, cabinet secretary, uh, Frances Perkins. Um, and uh, uh, she still holds the record for the longest serving secretary of labor in our country's history. Um, and the Department of Labor building in Washington, D.C. is named after her. Um, so um, good for him that he had the first female cabinet yes. secretary. Uh, I, I think we think of that as a um, a more recent, likely more recent thing, but no, it goes back to 1933. Yes, um, that's pretty awesome. She, but she had worked for him before, I think, hadn't she? She'd been yes part of when he was wasn't when he was governor. She worked for him, and yeah, she was his uh, commissioner of labor. Um, so she'd so been around this block before because he was governor of New York, Pennsylvania. Yeah, New York, yeah, yeah. Okay, so she'd done labor in a in a big state. It's not like yes. it's not like he was governor of. Forgive me, I love you, Wyoming, but Wyoming, yes. where you've got ten people who you have to manage their labor. It's like it's not. Yeah, New York is a, a densely populated. Was yes. densely populated even then. Yeah, labor issues in a large urban state are grossly different than labor issues in. Uh, a largely rural state, okay, in the Mountain West, right? I mean, they, they just are. Right. Um, and uh, uh, she was very prominent um, in encouraging Roosevelt. In, in, in let's be fair, Roosevelt never went as far as Francis Perkins wanted him to go <laughs> in regards to supporting labor, okay? Um, but she helped set up um, uh, the Triple uh, C, the Civilian Conservation Corps, oh. um, which we had talked about previously, where you took unemployed workers in urban areas and you had them work on conservation projects in rural areas, which again, in the United States in the 1930s, rural areas frequently were without running water, indoor plumbing, effective sewer systems, et cetera. So this was like a win-win for not only labor, but also rural areas, right? Right. Um, but her biggest contribution, and it's still with us today, Nia, is social security, okay? Was that her? She's the one, okay, who hounded Roosevelt and all of his you know, White House advisors 
that this nation needed, okay, uh, a pension system. Um, and uh, she uh, convinced Roosevelt to ask Congress to create it in 1935. Um, and, um, and it's still with us today. I mean, it's one of the more fascinating um, federal government programs uh, that had uh, created in the United States. You know, though, it is it makes sense to me that it would have been her actually now that I think about it, because you have that that switch over again. OK, so back in the day, what would happen is you would have a farm, you and your spouse, you and your wife have a farm and you have children. And your children, you, if your farm is big enough, you divide it between your male children. You're assuming your female children will marry someone else who has property of their own. But either way, you divide that out between your children. And then you live in, in the big house or the old house or whatever they would call it. And your kids take care of you when you get too, when you are too old to work, when you are too infirm yes. to work. Yep. Because you're living there with them. But now you're seeing in the 30s, you're seeing this urbanized. People may not be living together in that way. So oldsters are not immediately looked after by their family necessarily. And if that's the case, then you would need some sort of pension system to help them pay their bills when they're older, you know, to help them survive. Yeah, sociologists uh, may have chronicled how when the United States economy shifted from agrarian to industrialization, the family support system, okay, that was the foundation of basically you from cradle to grave, okay, no longer existed. So how do you replace that? And it was government officials like Francis Perkins, who was like, you replace it with the government creating things like a pension system. I mean, because in effect, that's what Social Security became. Right. Now, the other advantage of the Social Security system was it also addressed a more immediate public policy problem, which was we had a, a whole bunch of older Americans who lost their life savings when there was the run on banks and many banks foreclosed. Right. So again, okay. this, this had a ripple effect. Okay. Not only did it address a longer term, if you will, issue that was arising, not only in the United States, but in other Western democracies, it also addressed a more specific concrete public policy problem, which is we had a whole bunch of older Americans who lost their life savings, right? Right. So it wasn't just a matter of creating a pension system. It was a matter of how do we go ahead and make sure that a whole bunch of older Americans in the next five to 10 years actually have money to live on unless we were just going to give them direct welfare payments. And at that point, you know, the United States segues from capitalism to socialism, okay? And FDR didn't want any of that because he was already being accused of okay, being a socialist, by, by, of being a socialist. So that was 
in, in many ways, the politically, that was how astute Francis Perkins was. Right. right? Okay. That's that's pretty clever. And yep. I had not even thought of it that way, but you're you're right that the immediate need for those folks. And we do have to keep in mind that the that the life expectancy in 1933 was <clears throat> significantly less than it is now. Yeah. But so we're not they were not expecting for people to be on that system for 20, 30, 40 years. years. They were expecting probably the last five to 10 years of their lives. Lives, that's right. <clears throat> so that's a difference in the system the way it is now. It has not been adjusted probably in the ways that it needs to be adjusted for the length of time that people will theoretically be on it going forward. Word. That's right, yeah. So something for us to explore maybe in another podcast is what, what will happen with social or what's going to happen with social security. So I think it's it's interesting that she um, that oh. she that she like that there's stuff that Congress does at that point that also makes sure that there's an eight hour workday and that that as the secretary she can set the minimum wage rate based on locally prevailing rates. Yeah. So again, I, I know it, it sounds uh, like listeners that. Um, um, we are praying or worshiping at the altar of Frances Perkins, but she she did a <laughs> she did a lot of stuff that fundamentally changed labor conditions in the United States, and that we now think of as natural rights. Of course, yes. I have the right to an eight-hour workday. Of course, I have the right to a minimum wage. But before that, your workday is what I tell you it is. Yeah, because and your wage is what I give you. Yeah, like ma management had control, right? <laughs> So, you know, Francis Perkins pushed for the Wagner Act to be uh, passed um, in 1933, okay? And, you know, this is where you get, for instance, um, uh, the creation of, of uh, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, which we still have today. And with, unemployment insurance. Unemployment insurance. And, you know, in Nia, to your point, okay, we get a federal government minimum wage, but there's language in that initial law that said minimum wage, okay, would vary depending on the local conditions, right? Yeah, we don't get a, a federal minimum wage until much later, I think. Okay. But, but, but yeah, this idea that, you know, the what secretary you, could set that is fascinating to me. Yeah, you know, what you may need to live, again, we'll use New York City, is different than what you may need to live in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. Or, you know, Houston, Texas, or Tacoma, Washington, right? Right. The, 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 and again, that's a kind of nuance you hardly ever see. In the federal government. Yep. The federal government, right? Yeah, we love the federal government, but it doesn't always understand that when it makes I mean, a rule, it'll it will have different applications in different places by necessity. Yeah, because the you know, for the federal government, typically in most agencies, you know, they they you know what's the old adage? 
to an hammer, everything looks like a nail. Exactly. Right? Okay. Um, the federal government typically uses blunt instruments. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Everyone will make $3 an hour. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Regardless of what, well, okay, but in some places you don't need $3 in an hour. In some places you need $7 an hour. So I like that it's prevailing rates. Did she stay after FDR died? Uh, no. Um, uh, uh, FDR's successor was Harry Truman. Um, and, and Perkins, um, uh, and, and by the way, this is pretty much, you know, the norm that even we even see today, even if the successor president is from the same political party, most cabinet secretaries voluntarily resign to give the new president an opportunity to pick their people, right? Right. And she resigned. Um, and things got really difficult, okay, um, um, in regards to labor, because again, we're talking post-war. In, in, in listeners, this is one of the themes in regards to labor conditions in the United States, particularly after World Wars One and Two. you could even say even after the Korean War. When a war ends, a nation as large as the United States, its economy struggles to regain equilibrium. Because, right, because you've been on a war footing. You've been making yes, everything war is stuff. Direct, everything is directed towards supporting the war effort. But when the war ends, all right, all those sacrifices that people have been making, okay, uh, people don't want to make them anymore. Right. <laughs> Okay. I don't I don't want a victory garden. I want to go out to dinner. Okay. And I don't want wages controlled by a contract that the United States federal government set up with my corporation that I've worked for. I want to negotiate, okay, um a, you know, a, a living wage, right? Right. And you see this um, and you also don't you get a lot of inflation and stuff like that after wars? Yes. Like economy. I and I know we don't have time to go into the economies of pre and post and during wars. Although it would be fun to do that at some point. Oh yeah. Um, but I think that like you don't you just get all that where it's harder to buy stuff. It's harder, and manufacturing has to retool. So yes. the things that that. There now there are things now that people want that they can't get because they're not being made yet or they're not being made in sufficient numbers yet. And corporations are hedging their bets because they're trying to figure out where consumer demand will be. Okay. Whereas consumers are just like, okay, I'm home from the war. I got a good job and I want to buy a house and I want to buy a house here, but there's very little supply of houses. So I want to build a house, right? But the you know construction industry is like, well, we're waiting to see what kind of demand there is before we ramp up all of the supplies we need to build homes. Right, because we don't know if people are going to want to live in Richmond or Austin or you know Seattle or so wherever. There's this lag, right? Okay. There's this lag, right? Okay, makes sense. And workers, okay, after sacrificing are like, 
<laughs> well, what we have in terms of leverage is an ability to strike. Right. But the United States Congress in 1947 passed the Taft-Hartley Act, okay, which in many ways was very anti-union, okay? And Congress also reduced the budget of the Department of Labor because their thought was, we don't need a huge Department of Labor because post-war, we have a whole bunch of soldiers coming home from the war. Okay, so labor is plentiful. Abundant, right. And we, and, and we also know that women can be part of the labor force because they had essential jobs during World War II. Yes, but there was a whole attempt to shove women back into the house. Oh, sure. Get but, back to where you belong. Okay, um, but, 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 but I, didn't they also see the Department of Labor as supporting unions? Because it had supported unions. It had supported sort of this idea of collective bargaining and, and people being able to get fair treatment. And then you see this sort of swing. I, you're right. It's like a pendulum. Yes. It swings back to ah, unions. All they do is ruin everything. Bunch of pinko commies, right? Like, because now you've got this. You now have got, you've got this opposition to Russia that's coming in to the USSR. Yes. Sorry, not Russia to the USSR that's Far. coming in, and the USSR is pro union, pro labor, pro right. And, and so and anything does, that smacks of that is that, going to be seen as. And again, this is where we get our second red scare post-World War II. Right? Oh, right. When you have um, uh, Senator McCarthy. Yeah. And the House on american uh, committee hearings. Right. So the, the late 1940s through the 1950s, Nia, was not one of the. High, high points high points of the Department of Labor, right? <laughs> and, and interestingly enough, even in the 1960s, with a president like Lyndon Baines Johnson, okay, you know, his war on poverty, Johnson actually asked the Congress at least two different times to consider the idea of reuniting the Labor Department with commerce, okay? Because he argued both departments had similar goals, and he thought that having one department would create uh, efficient, if you will, achievement of those goals. Okay, I could see that. But Congress never acted on it. Of course okay? not. Because, well, because at that point, each department had their own stakeholders who were like, <laughs> If you merge these departments, our interests are going to get lost, okay, in this much larger unified department. And again, that's bureaucratic politics 101, folks. Okay? Right. And, and once a thing exists, it is hard to eradicate the thing or yes. change the thing to something else because there will be... There will be opponents to the sheer idea of change. Yes. That's the other thing that you run into with the federal government is, is bureaucratic politics in the sense of, oh, no, we're here and we exist. And if we change at all, it will be a disaster. So we are not going to change anything. Um, but our big next 
shift in the Department of Labor's focus, Nia, and I know this is going to shock listeners, actually comes in the Nixon administration. The Nixon yeah, administration. We all have to stop thinking of Nixon as just the greatest evil thing in the world. Because it, it was Nixon's Department of Labor who won, okay, pushed for greater racial diversity in unions in the United States, okay? His Secretary of Labor is an individual uh, that Bill Newman and I talked about in a previous podcast episode, um, George Schultz, um, because Schultz later on also uh, served as Secretary of State. Um, I wanna say he was the head of, uh, economic advisors for a future president. Again, he was one of those, you know, cabinet secretaries that because of his background, okay, could serve as a manager, no matter what was the subject matter focus of the department. And if that name sounds familiar to younger listeners, it may be because you watched a film called Theranos. Yes. And he was actually one of the people who gave uh, Elizabeth, I can't remember her last name, um, money to, to start that company. He yes. was a venture capitalist for her. And then he was one of the first to go ahead and speak out um, about the alleged fraud. <laughs> uh, his grandson. Yeah. His grandson yeah. who worked there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, but what I think is interesting is something you mentioned there is this idea of unions being racially diverse, because Burst. I assume that that's coming on the end of the, the Supreme Court um, sort of moving in the, oh, I mean, the, in the direction of the, desegregation the, and the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Okay. One of, one of the targets Okay, of the uh, of the civil rights movement in the 1960s was that labor unions in the United States, almost all of them were headed up by old white men. Right. Okay. Um, or dead white men in the case of Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. Well, that comes in the 1970s. <laughs> you, you, you make a good point, right? Okay. I, I don't mean, think he's I dead. Mean, I think he's you, on an you, island somewhere. You know, labor labor organizations that are supposed to represent all workers okay didn't look like all workers right okay right the they right. they represented white workers for the most yes. part okay and, and so you're not seeing that with now at some point along this route aren't we going to get my favorite department in the government ever ever at all which is osha well, and again, this arises um, uh, with the Nixon administration. Um, um, the Labor Department, um, uh, with authorizing legislation from Congress in 1970, created the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, and they were supposed to create uh, regulations to protect against hazards in the workplace. Yeah, I'm not trying to be ugly to the other to the other bureaus and administrations within the government. I love you all. But OSHA's dear to my heart because if you read OSHA, like if you read their newsletter, 
it's absolutely fascinating the things they will tell you you should not be doing in the workplace. Do not place your hand in this grinder. Like, yes, yet I needed the government to tell me not to do that. Like, I was pretty sure that wasn't going to be a good idea anyway, but thanks, Osha. I just love, I love this sort of, and I know that that's perceived by manufacturers as nitpicking and you, I, why do I have to put up a sign that says, don't stick your hand in this grinder? And it's because OSHA says you need to put a sign on that telling people not to do that. Because OSHA will get reports. <laughs> okay. Somebody's sticking their hand in the grinder. Oh, it sucked in my glasses and I just reached in to try to get them or whatever. Like, and then, then, and then they come by and they look at the thing and they say, yeah, that's really dangerous. Put a guard on it and then put a sign above it not to put your hand on it. OSHA gets criticized <laughs> from all quarters, Nia. Yes. Okay. OSHA gets criticized for from businesses for, as you pointed out, being nitpicking, issuing rules and regulations that jack up the costs of doing business. Labor complains that OSHA never has enough uh, inspectors. Right. So gross workplace safety violations and hazards never get addressed. And then you have people like us, okay, who by and large have been workers most of our lives, okay, where we will go into break rooms and we will see the OSHA, you know, flyers reminding us not to go ahead and do X, which causes us to laugh and chuckle. But we happen to know workers, colleagues, coworkers, <laughs> who would do that who, without who would do that stuff, right? Without the <laughs> without the warning. Yes. It's okay. so it's such a they they get ragged on by every single individual. And yet all they're trying to do is just make the workplace just a little bit safer, right? Because you know, like, the thought is you should be able to go to work without losing an eye. And at the end of the day, be able to go home with all of your body parts intact okay exactly enjoy, you know you know your time off of work okay but but, but oh there's a couple I love other things. OSHA. before we, we we wrap up okay there's a couple other things that the nixon administration did that again i don't think we give the nixon administration enough credit the nixon administration was the first presidential administration that actually created numerical hiring goals for federal government contractors in large urban areas. They're, they're, uh, they're referred to in the literature as Philadelphia plans because they were first instituted for federal government contracts in the city of Philadelphia. So is that if, we, if you get a federal government contract, your workforce must be diverse? must be diverse it must be diverse by x number of yes or x percentage of people whatever the percentage of people who live in in the area that percentage has to work for your corporation as a or you know you know your your company has to have the percentage of you know you know plumbers that are um, uh, 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 people of color or minorities, right? Right. I mean, and there's a whole group of people who would say that's a quota system. Yes. And the reason it's a quota system is because before that, those companies would be largely white. Federal government. White workers would get those contracts. Yeah. Federal government contracts historically 
always went to white owned firms, okay, that had um, white workers, white workers, right? Okay. And that's not fair. It's not fair. And even if that wasn't the stated policy, that was the result. Right. Right. So this changes that and says, no, you have to have diversity in your organization in order to get a contract from us. Again, a really good thing that comes out of the Nixon administration. And then the next thing is, and uh, and I'm reminded of this with all of the older generations within my family, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, <laughs> known as ERISA of 1974. The Department of Labor was given the job of protecting and improving the nation's private retirement systems. Okay. Because what would happen is that in a number of private industries, you were told that when you were when you retired, you had a pension. But what did companies frequently underfund to meet the bottom line? Oh, pensions. Pension systems, right? right. And um, they were assuming you'd also get social security, so... And this, this particular law has also been used to go ahead and uh, protect um, what many of us now have in, in, uh, uh, individual retirement accounts. It's this law that gives the federal government the authority to make sure that your IRAs, no matter what's going on in the stock market, okay, are protected. Are okay. protected, okay? And again, this happens in the Nixon administration, right? Okay. And yeah, in some ways, Nixon's, in some way, his, he's so moderate that in some ways he might be. Oh, today he would probably be. A Democrat, wouldn't he? he, he yeah, he would be a Democrat, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean he, he'd be a conservative Democrat, but yeah, he would but, be a Democrat. Yeah, okay, but. And we always conclude these episodes, listeners, with prominent secretaries of a particular department, okay? And again, the Department of Labor is just chock full of like really prominent government and political officials in a department, again, folks, has only been in existence for slightly over 100 years. I mean, think about that. Yeah, and weirdly, you would you will know a lot of these. You will know several of these names. Yes. Um, which, you know, you can't always pick out who the Department of Transportation is. Yeah, right. Right, but labor yeah. does so many things that affect, directly affect regular humans. Humans, yes. You get Frances Perkins. She's your first, and we got George Schultz. We know about George Schultz. Can I mention one? Yeah, go ahead. Elizabeth Dole, Libby Dole. Yes. Who, and the reason I say that is because she's from North Carolina and I, I, she's my hometown girl in that way. But also she served, she served as labor secretary. She served as secretary of transportation for Reagan, right? And she served as an, as a U.S., I mean, excuse me. Uh, yeah, as a U.S. Senator. So. Ran for president. Right. right? She's, I mean, doll is just. I mean, at one point I remember mainstream press saying she might be our first female president. Right. Okay, she was that prominent in Republican and, Party circles. And she was a moderate conservative yes. Republican, like just a moderate, you know, yeah. individual. Mainstream, okay. Right. And okay. and salt of the earth. I actually heard her speak once and she was very 
plain, simple spoken, just, you know. Yeah. Okay. She said, you should, I can't remember what she was running for, but she's like, you should elect me for this because it just will be a good idea. And it, you know, for the mark, for the most part was. And of course she was married to Bob Dole. Yeah. Another, if you will. Okay. Serve, served for a thousand years in the Senate. And yes. Yes. I mean, you know, so but, they were a service family. They did yes. a lot of service and you have a couple of other, I think, family people on this list, people who served with. Uh, well, we'll get to that name. I know who you're talking about. Uh, for those of us who are Supreme Court aficionados, Arthur Goldberg, okay, um, uh, was uh, uh, appointed to the Supreme Court, but LBJ uh infamously convinced him to step down from SCOTUS to serve as the U.S. ambassador to the United uh, Nations so uh, LBJ could get his good friend Abe Fortas on the court, okay? Uh, by the way, uh, uh, and then we have Ray Donovan. Ray Donovan was Reagan's first Secretary of Labor. He was indicted, okay, uh, for his role in the New York subway construction cost overruns in kickbacks, okay? He used to, uh, he ran a, con uh, a construction uh, company in New York, right? But he didn't do it, right? He did not do it, but it ruined his life. I mean, he was- Well, discredited. you get accused and yeah, you, he, if you're acquitted, the, the, the media has a way of of yes. uh, ruining your life, no matter even if you. Oh, well, oh, and by the way, he was acquitted, right? Like they they spend hours and hours telling you how guilty he is, and then five minutes telling you that he was acquitted. Yeah, um, uh, Clinton's first labor secretary is a very well known uh, progressive. Uh, uh, um, uh, well, he he's been an academic. He's been uh, 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 a cabinet secretary, Robert Reich. Okay. And he has a great YouTube channel if you're curious, listeners, and you want to yes. see um, more about him. He breaks down labor things very simply, very clearly, which comes from his professor days. Yes, yes. And then, of course, Nia, you and I are fascinated by the, um, uh, the, the last prominent labor secretary, Eugene Scalia. Okay. And that name sounds familiar. Familiar. Okay. We've mentioned Justice Scalia. Only about 460 billion times on this uh, yes. podcast. Okay. Eugene Scalia was Trump's second. <laughs> when, when you mention Trump's cabinet secretaries. You have to number them. You, you have to number them. because yeah. in many None of them served the entire four years. No. Not <laughs> he had a high turnover rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He had a high turnover rate. You have to uh, number them. Yeah, but Eugene Scalia, uh, the the son of former Supreme Court justice, um, and you know, in in at one point, um, uh, was considered, um, uh, you know, somebody who might be appointed to a federal judgeship, um, but nevertheless, yeah. So, um, it, it, a fascinating department. I mean, in Nia. I think you accurately described the importance of the Department of Labor. It affects regular humans. Yeah, its mission is to go ahead and basically protect all of us who are workers. 
okay? We're, we don't own capital. We don't run corporations. We just work for the quote unquote demand, right? Right. Right. And labor keeps us from the man running over us with a truck. Yeah, yeah, that's right. OSHA would put a thing on the front, do not run over, do not, you know, and do not stand in front of this truck. Yeah. 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 Otherwise, well, because business looks out for its, like, corporations look out for themselves, and that's not an unreasonable thing in in a capitalist society, but the workers often get left at the cold end. That's right. On that. Yep. So thank you, Labor, for trying to help us. Yes. Not that Labor's listening, but, you know, if they did, I, yes. I can hope. Yes. So thank you, Augie. And uh, this has been really interesting. And if you're interested in um, Perkins, I'm going to put a link to her history yeah. on the guide because she's a really interesting woman. Just fascinating individual. Yep. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.